Thank you, Paul and Corbin. Just a couple of thank yous before we begin. I want to express thanks to Wayne and Brian for driving all the way from Paris, Ontario last weekend so that we could have a service and for Jeff and the worship team that led us. It was an icy Sunday morning, but a number of people came and I sure appreciated Wayne preaching. He preached a sermon on um, about death and what next. So it was very personal and it was a timely message in light of the accident that took place with the humble Broncos. So great message by Wayne last week. Also, I want to thank you for praying for Cynthia and I. It's not this past week, but the week before we traveled to Louisville, Kentucky for the Together for the Gospel Conference. And I had some notes here I wanted to share with you, but in light of our time, I want to move past that and get to the Word. But let me just say that um, we were there for two and a half days. We listened to 10 one-hour messages by 10 different communicators. They had five panel discussions and two seminars. So needless to say, we were kept busy, out of trouble, and were not bored. We left early and came home, and so we missed the ice storm on Saturday morning as well. So that was a good thing as well. A couple of weeks ago, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We looked at the first 13 verses of John chapter 7. And these verses, we discovered Jesus responding to detractors. He avoided the Jews who were wanting to kill him. He dismissed his brothers who were advising him to head to the city of Jerusalem prematurely for a festival. And then once he got to Jerusalem secretly... He stood watching a crowd grumble about whether he was a good man or whether he was leading people astray. So there were detractors. And then in the message before that, you'll remember that Jesus was looking at some deserters. In fact, if you look at chapter 6 and verse um, 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and we're not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus' ministry has hit a little bit of a tough patch, I would say. We have deserters, and we have detractors, and now here in John chapter 7, verses 14 to 24, Jesus is facing some formidable critics, and that's what we want to look at this morning. How Jesus disarms his critics, as he stepped from that shadows in the city of Jerusalem onto the main stage in the temple and began to teach. Jesus disarms first the Jews and then the crowd. The Jews critiqued his credentials and the crowd critique his mental stability. So if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's word. We'll begin at verse 14 of John chapter 7, and read through to the end of verse 24. That's the passage that we want to consider over the next few minutes this morning. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned? having never been educated. 
So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks only seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries it out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marveled. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, it predated Moses. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. May God help us to not only understand, but see how this text of his holy word will impact our lives. You may be seated, and let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. The word made flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the written word that you inspired and preserved for our benefit. Because of your supernatural preservation, we hold in our hands reliable copies of your infallible, inerrant, and sufficient special revelation. A gracious gift that is able to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we can be adequate equipped for every good work. And so we pause to invite you to use this episode, the life of Jesus, as reported by the Apostle John here in John chapter 7, to do that kind of work in each of our lives this morning. Teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us, we pray. May this seed from your word, land in fertile soil in our minds and in our hearts. And may it grow up to produce much fruit so that Christ is formed in us by your power and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Demonstrating competence disarms critics. Demonstrating competence will disarm critics. Jesus disarmed his critics by demonstrating his competence. Look at verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. It was the midst of the feast. It was not the beginning, and it was not the end. It was somewhere in between. 
We're not told what he taught. Perhaps he was, well, maybe the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapter 6, 5, 6, and 7 would give us some hints as to what he might be teaching. Or perhaps he was explaining how this celebration, this festival, this festival of booze or festival of tabernacle that was celebrating God's historic deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian oppressive slavery. And maybe he was explaining how that historic picture also helps us to understand how God wants to deliver them from the bondage of sin if they would only repent and believe. For the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Regardless of the content, I think it is significant that Jesus steps up to the plate and begins to teach in the temple of all places. Talk about giving your official opposition home field advantage. Notice there are no miracles. There's no signs. Jesus is here to teach. Teaching was clearly a ministry priority for Jesus. Later in the Gospel, according to John, following his arrest, Jesus is being questioned by the high priest about his teaching. In John chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus answers the high priest with these words, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Jesus was unashamedly a committed teacher. And for us who have become his representatives, our teaching ministries must remain one of our highest priorities. And I've heard that saying, preach Christ and when all else fails, use words. That's not how Jesus operated. And I'm not even sure that that statement makes any sense. Especially in light of our mandate given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. A strong biblical teaching ministry with a high view of God and a high view of Scripture must always be a number one priority here at the Rock Community Church. We will not move off of that marker. Notice verse 15. The Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Remember, the Jews is a label used by the Apostle John throughout his book to identify Jesus' official opposition. They are the religious elite of Judaism. The ones who took their faith 
very, very seriously. They were the self-appointed guardians of the Mosaic law and the traditions of the elders. They insisted that they be followed to the letter and they would prosecute those who failed to do just that. And they were well-intentioned, but they were misguided and they misunderstood. These are the ones who, in verse 11, you will notice, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And why were they seeking him? Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. These same Jews are now astonished because Jesus is teaching in their temple. The word translated astonished would be the same word that we would use if we were caught completely by surprise, blindsided, caught completely off guard. Jesus was just 12 years old when his parents took him to the temple in Jerusalem. It was to celebrate a Passover. His parents started home and realized that Jesus wasn't amongst the crowd. It took them three days to find their 12-year-old. They found him sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions in the temple. Three days later, 12-year-old. Luke chapter 2, verse 48 reports that they were astonished. I'm astonished that that's all they were. Can you imagine losing a 12-year-old for three days? And then there was that time when his disciples were caught in that vicious storm out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walks out on the water in the storm, gets into the boat, rebukes the, w- the wind, and the sea goes like glass. The disciples were left astonished. I think the Jews in John chapter 7 were astonished because of Jesus' boldness. Knowing the hostility of the crowd in the temple, Jesus goes up to the temple and began to teach. That would require some kind of courage, don't you think? But it was more than his boldness. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 54, it reads, He came to his hometown, and he began teaching them in the synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? This is in his hometown. And Luke chapter 4 verse 32 reports, and they were amazed, astonished at his teaching for his message was with authority. Jesus' boldness, his content, and the way he taught left these Jews with their mouths hanging open. But notice, it didn't take them long to recover. They began to question his credentials. 
How has this man become learned, having never been educated? In some ways, their question is quite an admission, but that was not their intent. Jesus disarmed the critique of his credentials by demonstrating his credibility. Did you notice when we read it earlier how Jesus doesn't get defensive? But neither is he intimidated by these religious heavyweights. He doesn't back off and disappear into the crowd. Rather, he disarmed their critique of his credentials by first of all pointing to a credible source. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus takes no credit for his teaching. There was no rabbinical school. He wasn't even claiming to be self-taught. His teaching was from God, the God who had sent him, the one who he had claimed was his father. Remember back in John chapter 5, verse 18? For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here in John chapter 7, Jesus is claiming to be God taught. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And this was not an isolated claim. Remember John chapter 6 verse 38? For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Then in John chapter 12, verses 49 to 50, he declared, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. John chapter 14, verse 24 records these words from the lips of Jesus. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus claimed to be teaching the very words of God. And so the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us taught the word of God. And this has huge implications for you and me. Let's be careful, really careful, not to lead with our own opinions, our own experiences, our own applications, and our own great ideas. Rather, let's make our teaching materials clearly the Word of God, as presented and supernaturally preserved in this book. This book is a reliable copy of God's special revelation. It is inspired, 
inerrant and sufficient. And it's powerful. It can transform us from the inside out. Follow Jesus' example. Our teaching, whether formal, in a formal setting, or informally, at the coffee shop, as we share our lives with one another. Let's have our teaching not be about us, our experience, our ideas, our applications. We want to be found teaching what we have received from God. Jesus disarmed his critics by pointing to the source of his material. Next, he shares a credible means for verification. Look at verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Now granted, this is going to be really difficult for these Jews to accept. They would need to be willing to do God's will. One commentator puts it this way. God's word proves itself true to those who sincerely do it. In other words, if they would be willing to submit to what Jesus was teaching, then they would discover it to be absolutely true. Granted, it's a subjective test. But this reminds me of a verse that the guys on Tuesday morning have been memorizing. John chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus promises further disclosure to those who would choose to do what they know they ought to do, to live an obedient life. So this point of proving his credibility carries some implications for you and I as well. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read these words. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Perhaps we are limiting the influence of that powerful word in our lives. Are you willing to do what it's asking you to do? Regardless of how difficult it might appear, regardless of how challenging, regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of the control you may have to give up. Jesus disarmed his critics by pointing to a credible means of verification that required complete surrender and obedience. Verse 18. He who speaks from him seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true 
and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus disarms his critics by pointing to a credible motivation, his, his motivation. He's not in it for his own glory, but he's in it for God's glory. Notice the first part of that verse. When we speak from ourselves, we are seeking our own glory. Here we have it again. My thoughts, my ways, my experience, my opinion, my counsel, my understanding. Get the picture? That was not Jesus' M.O. Modus operandi. And neither should it be ours. Listen to Jesus' words. In John chapter 8, verse 50, I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So Jesus never seeks glory for himself. Even though he deserves it, and one day will receive it. Because God has promised, the Father has promised it to him. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at the second half of this verse. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Wow. Do you hear the implications? Do you desire to be a true and righteous person? I do. A giant step toward fulfilling that desire will require us to stop seeking our own glory and start seeking the glory of God. Because God's glory was Jesus' motivation, it disarmed his critics. It didn't eliminate them and it didn't silence them forever and ever, amen. You and I, we we all know the end of the story, don't we? But it certainly addressed the Jews' concerns about his credentials. The lack of letters behind his name. Demonstrating competence disarms critics. And Jesus disarmed the critics of his credentials by demonstrating his credibility. And notice how the tables get turned in verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So Jesus here actually confronts his audience with a harsh reality. Remember Max Dupree's quote? First responsibility of leadership is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. And in between the two, you're supposed to be servant and debtor. 
but sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we don't enjoy being confronted by reality. You have the law, but you don't keep it. Why are you seeking to kill me? It was a harsh assessment and a pointed question. And it led to the second critique, not from the Jews, but from the crowd. It seemed to be a more personal attack this time than what the Jews had offered. Notice verse 20. The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? So they begin with a clear accusation. They accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed, or perhaps in this culture they, they were diagnosing his mental instability. In Jesus' day, demon possession was always the answer to mental illness. And so maybe that was what they were alluding to. But whether they understood him to be actually possessed by a demon or not, clearly they were questioning his mental stability, his mental capacity. It also would appear that the Jews, up to this point, had been able to keep from the crowd, the general population, that they were indeed seeking to kill Jesus. But you have to ask a question. How had Jesus' assessment of reality, of their failure to keep the law, how did that deserve a charge of mental instability? It didn't. But how do you respond when someone gets in your face accusing you of doing something wrong or failure? When functioning at my very, very best, I get quiet. I'll withdraw. I'll circle the wagons. Take some time. Begin to assess the damage. And then plan how I will respond or retaliate. At my worst, I go on the attack attempting to justify my actions or destroy my conf confronter, somehow discrediting his critique so that I can dismiss it outright. Maybe their charge of instability isn't all that hard to understand after all. Jesus disarmed this critique of his mental stability by demonstrating his astuteness or his wisdom. Look at verse 21. Jesus answers them, I did one deed and you all marvel. So rather than continue the conversation in the abstract, Jesus points to a specific example. Turn back with me to John chapter 5. And we studied this, so I'm just bringing it to mind. Jesus now returned to Jerusalem. He's up in Jerusalem, and he walks over to the pool of Bethesda. And you'll remember that's where 
all the sick people came because the water stirred and the first one into the pool, the, the superstition was that they would somehow be healed of their sickness. And so there was all kinds, a multitude of sick, blind, lamed, and withered people lying around these pools. It's interesting. Jesus picks one man from the multitude and heals him. A lame man has been lame for 38 years. And of course, the people were absolutely amazed, astonished. Same words used to describe the the reaction of the Jews to Jesus' teaching in the temple. But notice what happens in verse 9 of of John chapter 5. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to be carrying your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. Drop down to verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18 again. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Jesus took them back to that very moment when the Jews made a decisive move move from sticks and stones will break your bones, the persecution, they moved from there to a plan to kill him, to take his life. And after establishing that specific example, Jesus presents A very rational argument. Look at verses 22 and 23 of John chapter 7. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well? On the Sabbath, so Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. These Jews, in order not to break Mosaic law, would circumcise a newborn on the eighth day. What happens if that newborn was born on the Sabbath? In these days, they're not controlling the day of birth. So if they're born on the Sabbath... You mark off eight days, oops, we're back to the Sabbath, and he needs to be circumcised if we're not going to break the law. And so that's exactly what they did. And Jesus' argument is, well then, how is me making a man completely whole again on the Sabbath wrong? Their inconsistency made no sense whatsoever. So we have a a man who has been accused of at least being mentally unstable, making a compellingly rational argument. 
Oops. In verse 24, Jesus describes what an appropriate response might look like. Two things. Notice verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Stop judging by externals. Start judging according to a right standard. Folks, what was the purpose of the Mosaic Law? Why was it given in the first place? Romans chapter 3, verse 20 puts it this way. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of Moses was intended to reveal our inability to live up to the standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with him. We are sinners through and through. 1 John chapter 5 puts it this way. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We cannot meet the standard that is required. And once we realize that, we turn to God in Christ, God's perfect remedy for our sin problem. Jesus, God dressed in human flesh, came and lived a perfect life and then died a horrible death to pay the penalty for our sin so that you and I can have a right relationship with God. We establish that relationship by first of all acknowledging and repenting of our sin. And then believing that Jesus was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. We believe that. And then finally, because of his accomplishment, Jesus' accomplishment, his life, death, and resurrection, we place our complete trust in him alone for our salvation. That's what the law of Moses was intended to do to prepare us, to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Now, for these Jews and the crowd in whose midst Jesus was standing, they were to look forward to the Messiah that God had promised to send Israel. You and I, standing on this side of the cross, we look backwards to what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. Jesus disarmed the critique of his mental stability by demonstrating his astuteness, his his wisdom. And Jesus disarms the critique of his credentials by demonstrating his credibility. Demonstrating competence disarms critics. And Jesus did all of that. But theologically, Jesus is demonstrating here not only that competence 
disarms critics, but he's demonstrating the authority of the Word of God. The Word of God, both the incarnate Word and the written Word that we have in our hands, is authoritative. You and I, we, we stand under this Word. We don't stand beside it, critiquing it, or above it. We stand under the Word of God. It is completely authoritative in our lives. Let me just give you a couple of, well, three verses that um, are meant to be reminders. We could spend the rest of the morning, going or afternoon, going through verses, but here's Psalm 119, and I think I listed them in your handout flyer in the bulletin. Psalm 119, verses 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever. It's a done deal. It's not going to change. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. This is the word incarnate. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from God the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the Apostle Paul penned these words to the believers in the city of Thessalonica, and I think these are great. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, very relevant to what we're talking about. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. I found this little write-up this past week on the authority of the Scripture. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. It means they never change. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be saved. And practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, heaven is opened, the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good is its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mind of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and it is established forever. 
it involves, it involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its contents. The Word of God. It's our authority. And so now what? Be willing to do his will. I'm lifting that implication directly from the text. Verse 17 of John chapter 7. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know. You'll know. It's God's word. Let's be those kinds of people. People who are willing to do his will. Whatever, wherever, whenever. Three suggestions. Number one, take every opportunity to increase your exposure to God's word. Take every opportunity. Create space in your life on a daily basis to allow God's word to impact your life, to intersect your life. Secondly, cultivate a humble and teachable spirit. Don't get defensive or dismissive or start playing silly hide-and-seek games with, with the word of God as it addresses things in your life, develop a humble, teachable spirit. And then finally, be quicker to confess known sin and disobedience. Ask for forgiveness. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's be a people who are willing to do his will. Father, you have spoken. Your word is accessible. Create in each one of us an increasing appetite for it, I pray. Prevent us from being hearers or readers only. Enable us to be doers of your word, obedient and faithful followers of Christ. We admit that apart from you, we can do nothing. But your word also says that with you, all things become possible. And so it is by your power and for your glory that we are asking these things to be accomplished in our lives, both individually and collectively. We come and we've asked in Jesus' name. Amen.